Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last Sunday, I shared this message about God's amazing grace. However, instead of focusing on how gracious, merciful, and forgiving God is, I labored to explain why we don't deserve God's grace. You know, I've observed this not only in my own journey, but also with many others who grow up in the church. We hear a thousand times how God loves us and forgives us, but we too easily overlook his wrath and holiness. God's grace is not amazing at all, but an entitlement if you don't know in your bones that you deserve his wrath. In what follows, I draw upon the first chapter of Isaiah to see God's heart towards his people, especially when we are enmeshed in sinful behaviors. Although difficult to preach, I believe this message is an important wake-up call for all of us. Here now is episode 454, Amazing Grace. To begin with, I'd like to look at Isaiah chapter 1 with you. Isaiah 1 is one of the most chilling chapters in all the book of Isaiah. It explains the inside understanding of God's heart when it comes to his people and specifically their acts of worship. And in the time of Isaiah, God's people were not in a good place. We can read about it in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. In the days of these kings, life was fairly good for Israel and for Judah. And Isaiah prophesied for a long time. It says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord, or his proper name Yahweh, has spoken. This is what God says. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So you can see God is upset with his people. And when people of other nations and people of other faiths do things, God cares. But when his people sin, when his people are rebellious, it really bothers him. Just like for you, if your children rebel, it matters more than if somebody else's kids rebel, right? And so it is with God. He's very upset with his people. He says in verse 4 that they are laden with iniquity. They're just loaded down with their sinful behaviors. They're the offspring of evildoers. So even their parents were bad, and now the kids are bad too. The children are dealing corruptly. And God feels that when it comes to his people, he's utterly estranged from them. In verse 5 we read, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. 
They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If Yahweh of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The situation is very bad here. Not only has God's people rebelled against Him, not only have they committed all these sins, but at the same time, They've suffered greatly. It says, like, they're, imagine like your whole body is covered with wounds, and that's what we're talking about. And then he gets specific in verse 7. He says, the country lies desolate. The cities are burned with fire. I mean, really, they're, they're just in terrible times in Judah and Jerusalem. It says that Zion, in verse 8, is like a, a lodge in a cucumber field, just Sort of like a dilapidated old building sitting out there in the middle of a field. This is just a devastating time for Judah. Even the capital is run down. And to be honest, when I read these words, I think of the United States today. I really do. Now, I know some of you are older than me, can remember more, and some of you are younger, can't remember quite as much as I can. But let's just consider the last couple years ever so briefly. You know, our stock market's in the toilet. Gas prices are through the roof. Yeah, thank you for that. I was trying to find a, a good way to say that. Yeah, gas prices are through the roof. What are, what are they, like five bucks, four bucks for gas? It's just unbelievable. Car prices are high. Do you want to buy a car? I'm just talking about a used car here. You have to pay a lot of money. I bought my car four years ago, and it's now worth more than what I bought it for after having put 70,000 miles on it. That doesn't make any sense. Now, that would be good news if whatever car I had to buy after I sold mine was a reasonable price, but that's even higher than what my car's worth. House prices are ridiculously high. College prices, to go to college these days, it costs as much as a house. And now you're going to pay off that debt the rest of your life. As of last month, I can have Bradley confirm me on this, we're at 9% inflation, or was it 9.1? 9.1% inflation, the highest rate since uh, 1981 in this country. Last year, I think it was 7% inflation. And our cities were on fire. I don't know if you remember the Black Lives Matter riots, uh, but our cities were recently on fire, and that didn't seem to solve the problem with racism. There's still problem with racism. Uh, our last election, not to get too political, I think those of you who, who know me for a while know that I stay away from politics in the pulpit, but our last election, we had to choose between Donald Trump and Joseph Biden. I'm just going to leave it right there. I'm going to leave it right there. Those were our choices. That sound, to me, maybe you think this is hyperbole, but to me that sounds like punishment from God. Cross-dressing and same-sex relationships are now standard. They used to be lurking on the edges of society or on certain kinds of risque TV. Now it's mainstream. Mass shootings are now commonplace. Mass shootings happen over and over and over again to a point where you know, even, even children are murdered in our country. So when I read these words about ancient Israel, I'm thinking like, huh, this kind of feels like 
our country today, to me, where there is this sense of suffering and this sense of destruction. And so I think when we get to verse 10 here and we read, what does the prophet say to his country 2,700 years ago, I think we can relate a little better than other times in our history. It says in verse 10 here, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. He straight up calls his own country Sodom. <laughs> I think we could give ancient Judah a run for its money as for the title of Sodom. I think, I think America today is worse. Maybe you agree or disagree. I think America today is worse than Judah was at the time that Isaiah prophesied this and called his own country Sodom. I think, I think we hold the title. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 11, what to me, this is what God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. See, the thing is, even though ancient Judah was committing all these sins, even though they were worshiping these other gods, even though they were so wicked that the prophet called them Sodom, an unprecedented insult for the record, they were still going to church. They were still, I mean, it wasn't church, it was the temple in, in their times. And, and they were still bringing all the animals in. And they were still offering all the sacrifices to God. And God says to them, I don't want your sacrifice. Like, God is the one that, that commanded the sacrifices. You read Leviticus. He says he does want the sacrifices. But because they're so sinful, he's just like, guys, I don't want your stupid animals. Verse 12 When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You want to worship God and you're also committing all the sins? He can't handle it. He just just said it straight up. I cannot endure iniquity. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Don't commit iniquities and then act like, oh, well, you know, I, I sang this song, so God's going to receive my worship. No, he sees, he sees your whole life. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. Wow. God says to his own people, your religious activity, his soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Verse 15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Let me tell you something. If you get to the point with your relationship with God where God says to you, I don't want your prayers. I don't want to listen to your prayers. I don't want to see, you know, you're, you're there in the worship service with your hands up. God's covering his eyes. He's saying like, I just can't see it. It's just so disgusting to me. Because, not because of the worship itself, but because of the worship and the sinfulness at the same time. Wow. This is just really powerful. Isaiah chapter one, wouldn't you say? God hated their religious feasts, their violence. He says their hands are full of blood. 
Kind of reminds me of some of those old mafia movies where they they go kill a bunch of people and then they go to church. No, like you can't trick God. I mean, you could trick me. I could be gullible at times or naive, right? You could trick your friends. You could trick your mom. But you can't trick God. He invented every last neuron in your brain. You can't even think about tricking God without him realizing you're thinking about it. He knows the inside and the outside and everyone else's inside and outside and everything everyone else has ever done. Oh yeah, we're just going to... He won't see this over here. Give me a break. You see, God is holy, pure, and righteous. God does not grade on a curve. God does not say, oh well, you know, these people at this church in Latham, you know, they're not as bad as the people over in that church in Schenectady. So, like, we'll just give their sins a break. No, that's not how it works. He doesn't grade on a curve. And God has no eyelids to close. He can't ignore. He can't not know everything. That's like a limitation of being God, I guess. He can't not know. There's no sticking his head in the sand. When I read Isaiah 1, I am stirred. I, I, feel, I feel a fire within my belly about this because this is the God that we are called to worship, a God who demands, above all else, honesty and humility in his people. He's not a God who demands perfection. I want to be clear about that up front. It's not like God says, oh, well, if you ever sin even once, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. But what he cannot stand is religious pride. Throughout all of Scripture, you just see it over and over again. Religious pride is just the worst. The person, the Pharisee who says, Jesus, I think you're doing it wrong. You imagine that. These people, they're rebuking Jesus. They're like, you know, I know that you miraculously healed this poor woman that's been bent over in half for 18 years, but you did it on the wrong day, Jesus. Right? That's religious pride. You know, rather than recognize God has done an incredible thing, it's like, well, I'm a little uncomfortable. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of other sins going on. And I know this is not popular. You know, we, we, like, we love to sing about God's love. We love to sing about God's grace. We love to sing about God's mercy. And I'm not challenging that. But the simple fact of, of the matter is, the Bible contains more than just that about God. And when we, we read the prophets in particular, which the prophets are going to give you the true heart of God. They're going to give you his inside feelings about the situation. That's one of the great benefits of having the prophets. When we see that, we realize God is not a cuddly, stuffed animal in the sky. I think if you just looked at our music, and I'm not criticizing our praise team here, I'm talking about Christian music in general, you would conclude that God is just like a, a cuddly, stuffed animal. You know, someone who's just like, oh, isn't he so sweet? Isn't he so nice? And, you know, that's my God. You know, he's, he's just like a Care Bear in the sky. You remember the Care Bears cartoons, some of you? Just cotton candy and rainbows and sweet little drops. But I think you know that God is also a God of wrath. God is not a fool. God is not a wuss. God is a God of wrath. 
What, what do you do when you get angry? When you get really angry, what do you do? What do you do? You shout? I think most people, when they get really angry, they shout! You know, they carry on. You ever light somebody up when they cut you off in the car? With your words, I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, we get angry, we shout. You know, some of us, some of us, uh, you know, we'll, we'll kick things. We're like, get real angry, and kick something over and, you know, maybe break it. You know, we'll, we'll get real angry or, or some of us, we'll just go and we'll just, we'll punch the wall. Have you ever punched a wall? I, I'll be honest, I've punched a wall. Some of the ladies are like, you're crazy. <laughs> I punch a wall, I punch a wall. Don't punch a brick wall. You only punch a brick wall once. These are the kinds of things that human beings do when we get angry, right? When God gets angry, it's a whole other situation. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Gog is angry. He rebukes the sea, and it gets dry. You rebuke the sea, and it just keeps on going. <laughs> he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. God gets angry and just for a second touches a mountain. It's just like wax melting. It's a whole other level that we're talking about here when the most powerful being in the universe gets angry, gets wrathful. And, and as, as you know, there is such a thing as unrighteous anger. And there's such a thing as righteous anger. Jesus got angry, but it was a righteous anger. God never gets angry in an unrighteous way. And he doesn't just flare up capriciously. He's slow to anger. But there is wrath there. We have to reckon with that. We have to work that into our way of thinking about God. Verse 6, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Yahweh is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. When I take a moment to consider the state of this country, of the church, of my own heart, I, I, I lose all my excuses there's an average of 400,000 murders every year. That's awful. That's around the world, not just in the United States. Around the world, 29,400 are killed by terrorists in just in 2020. As humans, we're ripping each other off. In 2021, $2.4 billion were lost as a result of cyber crimes. Just people stealing money from each other, tricking unsuspecting people to click on an email, open an attachment, that sort of thing. In the United States, in 2020, there were over 6 million property crimes and 21,000 murders, 126,000 rapes. And that was all during COVID. That was 2020. You know, that was like the time when we all sat inside. 810,000 motor vehicle thefts 
in 2020 in this country. Like, I don't, I don't see how we can say, oh, well, we're better than ancient Israel or ancient Judah. Then if we look at the Christian church, the Christian church in the United States in particular has been rocked by scandal after scandal after scandal. In 2020, the most famous pastor in New York State got caught having an affair, a guy named Carl Lentz, uh, the pastor of Hillsong, New York City. He stepped down. Last year, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries released the results of an investigation that found that Ravi Zacharias, who's probably the most famous defender of Christianity in the world, at least the English-speaking world, that he solicited explicit photos from more than 200 women and regularly coerced women in massage parlors to have sex with them. That was revealed by a report last year by his own organization after he had died. Just a couple months ago, the Southern Baptist Church 47,000 churches in the United States, millions and millions of people, released a mammoth report detailing 700 incidents of sexual abuse within their churches over the last decade or so throughout the United States. And we're Christians. We're supposed to be the light of the world. We're, you know, Jesus said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? My point is this. God's wrath is justified. We are Sodom. We are Gomorrah. And, you know, I, I don't have the wisdom to know, like, what specific things that we suffer are the acts of God and just other ones that happen because of stupidity or whatever. I don't know. But I, I can say this, that we have nothing on ancient Judah to say, you know what, God's going to favor us, God's going to favor me, we're going to be good. Think about your own heart. What about you? What sins have you committed? You know, have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you lusted after people? Do, do you entertain yourself with sin? I think that's a huge temptation for us. And, and what do we say? We say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm good with God. I pray for my food. You pray for your food. That's great. That's great. You pray for your food. Who do you think you are? I mean, who... I mean, do you, do you think you can just trick God? I think we think that, don't we? We, 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 are, we? we trick ourselves into thinking, God is a teddy bear. I will just give him a little bit of love once in a while, rub his tummy with a food prayer, and then he'll bless my whole life and I can sin and do everything I want to do. That's how we act. This is not going to work for a strategy of life. You know what we say? We say, all right, pastor, I hear what you're saying. You're being a little harsh, but I hear what you're saying. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. Whatever, I'll repent of it later. God will forgive me. In Hebrews 6, verse 4, it says, for it is impossible. You notice that word? What does that mean? Not possible, right? Can't do it. Can't be done. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Two observations here. One, you can fall away. That's what it says. And two, there's a line beyond which you don't come back. You know, the Scripture doesn't say how many sins that is. It doesn't say what you have to do specifically. But it says there's a line. There is a line, ladies and gentlemen, 
in each one of your walks with God. And if you want to fake it or if you want to rebel or if you want to take advantage of God, just even that thought is ridiculous. There is a line. And after you cross that line, there is not a coming back. I think of somebody who crossed that line in Scripture. Pharaoh. Pharaoh crossed that line. Ancient Pharaoh in Egypt. He was so wicked. He persecuted God's people. He, he told the midwives to murder the baby boys. And then when that didn't work, he made it official government policy. If you see an Israelite boy, throw him in the Nile River. That's government ethnic cleansing. That's what that is right there. And God said, all right, Pharaoh, you're done. God sent Moses and said, let my people go. And if you don't, there's going to be these plagues. And it says early on, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Later on, it says God hardened his heart. It's like he got, Pharaoh got his foot on the gas pedal and he was cruising along. And then he started to realize he was headed for a wall called Yahweh. And he tried to take his foot off that pedal, and God put his foot on Pharaoh's foot. He said, you're going to hit that wall, and you're going to hit it at ten plagues. We're not going to drop out at eight. I want to demonstrate my power. Pharaoh crossed the line. There was no coming back for Pharaoh. God, Pharaoh suffered God's judgment. Didn't matter if he wanted to let him go at a certain point. God said, no, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to harden your heart, and we're going to get this thing done. And it's going to be ten plagues. Not going to be eleven. It's not going to be nine. Pharaoh crossed the line. Yeah, I know, but God is love. He won't punish me. I'm a Christian. All right, well, first of all, was Hebrews written for Christians? Let's see. These are people who have been enlightened. It sounds like Christianity. This is an enlightening faith. You have tasted the heavenly gift. That sounds like Christians. You have shared in the Holy Spirit. You have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. These are not for fakers, these, these, these words we just read. These are for legitimate Christians, legitimate people of faith that then have fallen away. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It says here that if you go on sinning deliberately, now I'm not talking about making a mistake, I'm talking about sinning with a high hand. I'm talking about saying, oh, well, I'll repent of this later. You know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I don't care what God thinks. I don't, it doesn't matter. I'll ju I'm just going to presume upon his love, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Is that a fair description of sinning deliberately? That idea of going on sinning deliberately? I don't care what God thinks. Have you ever been there? This is, this is a dark place to be. 
And if you've already received the not, now if you're, if you're an unbeliever and you go on sinning willfully, so what? What else are you going to do? That's your whole life. Right? We're not talking about unbelievers here. This is talking about the church. This is if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Look, if you don't have a knowledge of the truth, God's not going to hold you accountable for the knowledge of the truth. But if you have the knowledge of the truth, don't play like you don't. It's not a game. You can't game God. There is no longer a sacrifice for sins. Instead of a sacrifice for sins, you know what you get? The expectation of judgment. And the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Sometimes people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. Nonsense. Nonsense. That's ridiculous. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and a God of love. The God of the New Testament is a God of wrath and a God of love. He's both. All the time, always has been, always will be. He is the perfect balance within himself of those attributes of love and judgment. And we need God to be the judge. Let's face it. It's not like we're going to find justice among human civilization much of the time. Sometimes you do, but a lot of times you don't. We need God to be a God of justice. Don't allow yourself to think God is a joke or God doesn't know what you're doing because the lights are off or because it's dark or because nobody's going to catch you or because you've had a hard day, or because you're not as bad as your neighbor. right? These rationalizations we tell ourselves, they're not going to work. They're not going to work. We're talking about a being that's infinite years old. Even if he was a thousand years old, he'd probably be a little more experienced than any one of us, right? God literally doesn't have a beginning. There is no, there's no work in the system. right? There's no like... Well, I'm going to do this terrible thing that I know is wrong, and then I'm going to pray real quick. That's you gaming God. That's you playing with religion. That's religious pride. Oh, he can't touch me. No, 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 no. He can't touch me. I don't, I don't face his wrath. I don't face his wrath. Who is this for that we just read in Hebrews chapter 10? Is this for the unbelievers? No, this is for the Christians. It says right here, if you... Go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Even though you're one of God's people, you move to the category of facing the judgment of God as an adversary. You want to face the anger of God. I don't want to face the anger of my wife. I don't want to face the anger of my children. I don't want to face the anger of you. You want to face the you want to you want to play with it and, and, and mess around and not take it seriously. You're going to be on the side of those who are facing the anger of the God who, if he just lost it for a moment, we'd lose a galaxy. Pfft. He punches a wall, a thousand stars go out. Do you want to mess with that? You want to play with that? You wouldn't play with electricity. You wouldn't stick a, a metal object in an outlet and play with it and just see, like, well, how close can I get? You wouldn't do that. Why? Because it would, it would hurt. What's worse, 120 volts in a wall or the God who invented electricity in the first place on whose wrath mountains melt like wax? 
It says in Isaiah chapter 1, back to verse 16, Wash yourselves. God doesn't leave us in despair. Hallelujah. He doesn't leave us in despair. He says, wash yourselves. The prophet says to the people, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. In other words, repent. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The only way you can possibly repent of your sins is if you don't think God owes you. If you think God owes you because you gave to the church or because you sang a song or because you one time invited somebody to come to a, a meeting, these things, don't, these, these things don't make God indebted to you. God's not indebted to you where he's like, I really should give her a pass on this one because there was that one time that she forgave somebody that was really mean. Like, that's just not real. Is that a realistic expectation that we put God in our debt and now he has to do whatever we want? I mean, you could try that with your kids, and I bet it wouldn't even work. You know, with God? I don't think so. God doesn't owe us. So, verse 16, when it says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, this is not take, talking about taking a bath. This is talking about a heart that says, I want to be clean before God. I want to repent of my sins. I want to be pure. I don't want to play with it. I don't want to mess around. I don't want to treat it like it's a joke or treat it in a cavalier manner. I want to get serious. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Repent. That's the message that Isaiah brought to his people. And if we look at John the Baptist 700 years later, he comes on the scene. His first words are, guess what? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes on the scene on the heels of John the Baptist, and he says, it's okay, everyone. You know, John was a little strict. Isaiah, he was nuts. God will just forgive everybody. Do whatever you want. He's, he's tolerant. You just live however, you, whatever your little heart tells you to do, you live that way, and God will be, God will support you. Is that what Jesus said when he came on the scene, on the heels of John the Baptist? Did he come on the scene and say, you know what, everyone was too strict. I'm loose. Is that what Jesus said? No. Believe it or not, Jesus' first recorded words were, Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand. Just like John the Baptist. This is the starting point with our relationship with God. If you want to see revival, it starts in the church. And to be more specific, it starts within you. It starts within your own heart. That's where revival always begins. Verse 18 Isaiah says, come now, actually God says, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh, though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Whoa. <laughs> let me read that again. Though your sins are like scarlet, scarlet is, is like the dark red, right? That's how our sins are. They're stained, they're like blood, that you can't get them off. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing to, and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now finally, in verse 18 here, we encounter grace. 
we encounter grace for the first time. It doesn't say the word grace, but that's what it is. When God says to his people who are laden with iniquity, whose hands are full of blood, who are idol worshipers, who have antagonized God to the point where he says, I hate your prayers. This, this is where they're at at this point. And God says, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can become as white as snow. What does that tell you about the heart of God? What does that tell you about him? It tells you that he is a God who is eager to forgive. A God who, you know, all these songs we sing, these are all true. I'm not challenging that. But it's just the simple fact of the matter is until you get to the point where you say, I am not worthy of salvation, will your salvation matter? If on the inside you think to yourself, well, God really does need to save me. I mean, what would the church be like without me in it? If that's what you think, your salvation is worthless because it's an entitlement. And what you're really doing is you're presuming upon God. You're saying God has to save me. God doesn't have to save you. You're just another one of the billions of people that happens to be alive at this particular moment. Now, he does want to save you but only if you realize that you're not worthy of salvation. Only if you, have, if you say, I have no basis. I have no basis. I have no grounding. I have no right to have a relationship with the Almighty God. I, I have no right. I've, I, I can't say, well, I worked really hard in school and did my homework on time, and therefore God should listen to me. The governor wouldn't listen to you because you did your homework. Oh, I was really successful in business, and therefore God should listen to me. Business? Come on. However, if you say, I have sinned, and I cannot atone for my own sins, I cannot clean myself, then God says, I got somebody. I got somebody I can work with. There's somebody, that, that's the secret code. You want to know the secret passcode to reach the heart of the most powerful, incredible being in the world is the heart that says, I don't deserve to reach the most powerful being in the universe. It's a heart that says, I am not prideful. I am not presuming upon God. I don't deserve God. And God says, there's somebody I can work with. There's somebody that I can begin to work with in their life. You know, you don't even know all your sins. Think about that for a minute. You probably only know half of your sins that you've ever committed in a particular day. Like the other ones you thought were righteous and it turned out they were really unrighteous because your, 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 your compass, your moral compass doesn't point to true north. You, you think you're going this way. From God's perspective, you're going this way. Yeah, you're kind of going in that direction, but you're, you're skewed. You know, we, we, we have too high of an opinion of ourselves. The fact of the matter is, we have a lot of sins. We do need grace. And only then, when you come to the place of saying this, uh, like the song Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. When you have that heart that says, it's, I, I got nothing here, God. I've got nothing. I don't deserve anything. I have sinned. I have fallen short. The wages of sin is death. Only once you come to that place in your heart, then God can begin the work in your heart. Otherwise, it's just games. You're just playing games. 
You think because you went to prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. That's a magic password that makes God obligated to you. There's no way. There's no way that that's how it works. That's magic. That's not true faith. That's not a relationship. There is no gaming God. There is no tricking Him into doing what you want and giving you eternal life. It's all about your heart. And He can see it with a glance. He's not like, well, let's see. Let me uh, divide by two, carry the one. You know, I think Masterson's 80% on my, you know, interested. No, it's not like that. Boom, he knows where you're at. Instantly. Romans 5, verse 6, magnificent scripture says, For while we were still weak, you got to recognize you're weak. You think you're strong, guess what? This verse isn't going to work for you. But if you know you're weak, you can realize this truth. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I confess, Lord, I'm one of the ungodly. I'm one of the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But you got to admit you're a sinner. If you really secretly on the inside of your heart think, "Ah, actually, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. He really does need to give me eternal life because what would the kingdom be like if I wasn't there? Guess what? You just disqualified yourself. None of these verses apply to you anymore. These verses are for people who say, I am weak. I am ungodly. I have sinned. That's who these verses are for. That's step one. If you have that heart, you say, you know what, God? I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve your forgiveness. Then guess what? Christ died for you. Hallelujah. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Yeah, you need to be saved from death, but you even more need to be saved from the wrath of God. Because I'm sure He's capable of making death seem easy. And look at that. Let me read that again. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Wow. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. When you say, I am a sinner who rightly deserves God's wrath, in that moment, God says, there's someone I can work with. There's, there's a heart that is open to salvation. And look, I know this is certainly my focus is more for people who are coming in the first time. But this also applies to those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a time. It's it's true for both. Because it's not just like one time you have a heart that says, I don't deserve God's grace, and then you you experience His grace and you have this incredible uh, forgiveness, right? That's true. But then every day you have to wake up and you have to say, here's a new day to live for God. Here's a new day to live for God. Today I commit myself to serve you and not myself. I mean, you still have to do the stuff you got to do. Don't stop brushing your teeth. But, you know, serve God. Make God the priority of your heart each and every day. Then God's grace is like an amazing wave 
that washes over you. And His grace, as, as, as powerful as His wrath is, His grace is even more powerful. It's even bigger. Overtaking you with His love and His forgiveness, only then, when you don't deserve it, can you sing this song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you don't think you're a wretch, you say to yourself, oh, well, of course he saved me. I mean, I'm me. You make a joke of the whole thing. But if you realize that you're a wretch and you realize that God loved a wretch, suddenly his grace is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. So many of the problems you face as a Christian, those of you who have committed your life to Christ, so many of the problems that you face as a Christian can be solved when you just simply remember you don't deserve God's grace. If you remember you don't deserve God's grace, it sets the perspective right with God so then you can say, wow, he saved me. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 454, Amazing Grace, and leave your feedback there. Also, as of today, the day that this podcast is coming out, I am going to be traveling to Africa as a missionary for a two-week trip, visiting two churches, one in Brazzaville, one in Kinshasa, in the Republic of the Congo and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I know that a lot of you who listen to this uh, will be listening to this way later, but if you're listening to this relatively within the two weeks of it coming out, I do ask that you would pray for me. I'm going with two others, and we're going to be teaching in the churches and visiting the saints there. And we also have a child education initiative very much alive and at work in one of these countries in which we are supporting over 100 children to go to school. And we're checking up on that and making sure everything is going well. So uh, yeah, if you don't mind uh, pausing this or doing it afterwards, but uh, yeah, if you could pray for us, uh, for me, Sean, for Tom and Russell, the three of us are going on this trip. We'll be there for two weeks, which means that next week I will still be there in Africa, but don't worry. I have already recorded a podcast set to go so that you won't miss out any time. Well, thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.